in my day job, I'm a race engineer for Sir Lewis Hamilton's extremely racing team. Everyone knows three, four people. Shider's not used his hype drive. Shider going out to the outside lane. He's going to racing in the most remote locations around the world that are affected by climate change. And we essentially bring this solution of this electric SUV and superimpose it on the problems. Every single time we're in a different terrain. So you could have big jumps, water splashes. There's all types of obstacles that these electric SUVs have to go through. So in our context, batteries are one of the most important pieces of technology that we have with the car to power our motors and to drive the car and give it that instant torque. So it's immediately off the line, bringing this two-ton car to massive speeds, 130 kph. Batteries is a piece of technology that we've been working on for the last three years. So I've seen their development and now we're at a place where we're trying to push the boundaries. So in my everyday job, I typically have to look at batteries a lot more than the average person would do. For most people, it's hidden. They're everywhere, but we often don't think about them. But there's so much science that goes into actually producing these and they're a large part of what the future of our planet relies on. So it's a very interesting topic and I'm keen to dive in. I'm Georgia Maffedon and you're listening to Create the Future from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering. I'm taking over hosting duties from Roma Agrawal for the next couple of months. Today, we're looking at something which underpins nearly every aspect of modern technology and is going to be the key to a truly green future. Batteries. I'll be talking to Samuel Cooper from the Dyson School of Engineering at Imperial College London about his work using AI to design better batteries. People should care about batteries because they give us a vision of tomorrow. And Ed Conway, economics and data editor at Sky News and the author of a new book, Material World, looking at six substances that have transformed our world and will ultimately build our future, including one that is at the heart of battery technology, lithium. In your battery, that lithium that's in there, certainly if it's come from South America, will have come out from this underground reservoir where it's been trapped for millions of years, and yet that is in your device, storing energy. Well, first of all, thank you, Sam and Ed, uh, for taking out the time this morning to be with me on my first episode Thanks, of the George. Create the Future podcast. Well, I guess we'll kick off with Sam first. Why should people care about batteries, in your view? So batteries, I think people will be broadly aware, interact with so many parts of their life today. You and I are both sitting in front of devices, laptops, iPads, mobile phones, and we can all see everyone's slightly crooked neck from constantly staring down at their phone. They are a central part of modern life. But I think they are deeply mysterious in where all of the components come from and who made them and where. And so we end up being, especially in the UK, I would say, very oblivious about these devices, which are right at the heart of our lives. So people should care about them because they are not a sure thing, by which I mean the materials from which these things are made come from complicated places with complicated political makeups and they are manufactured in places where the manufacturing sector is totally different or the industry is totally different from the UK and there can be political tensions between those places and other places and we just are totally oblivious to this. 
in the UK. I'd love to dig into that a lot more. And maybe, Ed, I'm not sure if you have anything else that you want to add on to this in terms of why should people care about batteries? I think we take a lot of this stuff for granted. And I, I go both ways as to whether I think that's a good or a bad thing. In some senses, you know, it's wonderful that we can be quite complacent about this stuff. But only when you peer into the processes by which this stuff is made, do you start to realise that, hang on, you know, this thing that I'm holding, this device, whether it's, you know, the smartphone itself, the, the semiconductor inside it, the silicon wafers that go into semiconductors, they are some of literally the most perfect structures that humankind has ever made. And yet they are there in our pockets all the time. And I kind of think it's one of the wonders of the universe. So I think it's amazing. But by the same token, there's this frustration that I have, and I'm, you know, I'm sure Sarah has, and probably you have as well, George, which is like, God, this stuff is amazing. Why don't we talk more about it, you know? And of course, the next bit is that people should care about batteries because they give us a vision of tomorrow. And so if we're going to have any success in fighting climate change, we need to have ways of storing the energy that we produce. It is extraordinary the progress that has been made in the development of wind and solar power for producing energy or producing useful energy. However, we are currently still not brilliant at working out how to store that for long durations of time. Batteries have been getting hugely better in the last 20 years, but they still struggle to store large amounts of energy for long amounts of time. But we're going to need to work out how to do that. And that's going to be very exciting in the next 10 years to see exactly how the technology adapts. Exactly. I want to start this conversation in a rather unexpected place, uh, a place that I know pretty well from racing and remember because I had pretty dry lips uh, when I left uh, in the paddock every single time. It's the middle of the Atacama Desert in Chile. Um, and now, Ed, this is a place that you know really well and is really important in the story of batteries. Um, yeah, maybe you can tell us why. Yeah, you get very dry lips in the Atacama Desert as well because it just it, it's one of the driest places on earth. And it has a very strange ecosystem. And to some extent, that is probably part of the explanation, the, the ecosystem, the geology as well, for why you have these extraordinary lithium reserves. So in this place, you have these salt lakes that have formed over the course of millions of years. And underneath the crust of the salt lake is uh, an amazing amount of quite pure lithium brine. And the, the funny thing that I found actually, so I went out there and saw the process of how they make it, was not just actually how state-of-the-art this stuff was, but actually how ancient some of the processes that they used to get this stuff out of the ground is. So the way that we get that lithium is kind of similar to how we get salt out of the ground and how the Phoenicians used to get salt out of the ground thousands of years ago, which is you just drain a lot of brine out of the ground. And their Phoenicians used to just get seawater. And then you just let it evaporate over many months. That's basically how Chile gets its lithium out of the ground. And it's that weird thing of the you know the super ancient and the super modern are kind of mingling here when in you know in your battery that lithium that's in there certainly if it's come from South America uh, will have come out from this underground reservoir where it's been trapped there for millions of years and yet that is there in your device doing this extraordinary kind of futuristic thing of, of storing energy but I mean obviously there's this kind of flip side to all of that which is that there are environmental costs with. Uh, going into places where we don't know all that much about how the lithium was formed. This is a new thing. And so we're only now starting to work out what the implications are in those areas, which makes this, you know, a more uncomfortable journey than people might like. And how much lithium exactly are we are we talking about? 
there isn't very much lithium in a lithium-ion battery. So a conventional lithium-ion battery is going to be about 2% lithium. And I suspect we'll be coming later in the conversation to why on earth is it then called a lithium-ion battery if it's only 2% lithium? George, can I be very cruel and put you on the spot? Please. By mass, what is the most abundant element in a lithium-ion battery? Typically. Ed, you're welcome to have a go at this one as well. In the lithium-ion battery, oh, that's a good question. Um, so I, was, I would say either nickel or carbon. It's carbon. Yeah, carbon, yeah. Carbon. That a lot of sense, yeah. Ed, you highlighted another metal in there. There's often nickel, there's often cobalt, there's often manganese. And I just wanted to follow up what you were saying a second ago about this very uncomfortable juxtaposition of the ancient and the modern, where there's a, a recent brilliant book called Cobalt Red by Siddharth Kara, and it talking about the sort of basically slave labor conditions or debt bondage labor in Central Africa, so in the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the mining conditions look like you had imagined from ancient Egypt 5,000 years ago, just totally staggering awfulness. And the minerals that they're extracting from the ground end up in the thousand pound shiny device that goes into your pocket. It is just extraordinary. And I think very analogous to the uh, slave trade and sugar the average consumer of that product is not spending much time thinking about where that sugar would have come from a hundred years ago. And yet it came from one of the most desperate environments in the whole world. That's still going on today. And I guess they're trying to find some replacements where they can, but ultimately those precious materials or, or metals, we're still, we're still using them in the larger way. And I've got a question for you, Sam, in terms of what the lithium in these batteries is actually doing. If it's mm -hmm. only 2% right. majority is carbon, why must do we... Must be important. Yeah, it must be important. So what is it actually doing? What's it doing? So I want to step back a little bit and just talk about chemistry and a piece that I think everyone's familiar with. If you've got hydrogen and oxygen, I think we all would know that you can combine those two elements together and they'll make water. And if you do that, it actually is all very dramatic. It'll explode uh, because it really would prefer, and this is me with quote marks in the air around my microphone, it would prefer to be water than hydrogen and oxygen. That's chemistry driving in a particular direction. That's, that's thermodynamics. In battery materials, some special solid materials, they have this special property that lithium can get inside the crystal structure of the solid. But lithium would prefer to be in some than others. And if you let it go to the one it prefers to, it will give you energy back. And so in a battery, you've got two electrodes. Both of these solid materials, or they're, they're actually porous, but in the solid bit, will allow lithium inside the crystal structure. But it would rather be in your cathode than your anode. So it starts off, if, you, if you'll allow me, it will start off inside the crystal structure of your graphite, which is a sort of carbon material. But if you allow it, it will travel out of that solid through a liquid in the pores, and into the solid on the other side, which could be nickel, manganese, copper oxide, or LFP. And it will travel inside that one, and it will release energy by doing that, because it would rather be in that material than in the graphite material. And in order to get from one side to the other, as it's hopped out the solid, an electron stays behind and travels around an external circuit. So the lithium iron can travel through the liquid, but the electron that's been left behind has to travel through a wire, and it traveling through that wire is what allows you to do work on things. So that electron, the wire can, you know, turn the motors in your car and then it can rejoin that lithium, not literally the same one. Yeah. It'll rejoin the lithium in the other electrode uh, once it arrives there. Amazing. And I guess this is a question for Ed. So now we know why we need 
the lithium uh, from places like the Atacama kind of desert in Chile. How do we mine it from the brine uh, in the Salada Atacama? And can you, you know, kind of describe what these ponds actually look like? Because it's pretty beautiful. Yeah, sure. George. I mean, it's a weird and surreal place to be because it's quite a barren, well, a very barren landscape. It is basically a desert. So it looks like quite kind of monochrome desert landscape. And then you kind of cast your eyes, you know, across the salt flats and then suddenly you see these translucent, beautiful ponds, these massive ponds, which are so big that you can see them from a satellite. Some of them are turquoise, some of them are kind of green, some of them are almost yellow. And actually you can tell by where they are in the lithium process by what colour they are. The more greeny, yellowy they are, the more lithium they have in them. It takes quite a while, about, you know, almost a year to evaporate away most of the water and precipitate away the other salts. And then at the end, you're left with this very gloopy kind of liquid, which if you stick your finger in it, it's actually your finger comes out and it's very slippery. And that's partly because lithium is a lubricant as well as doing all the other extraordinary things it does. So essentially, once you're left with this kind of concentrated brine solution, then it just goes off to a processing plant. But at the end of it, you're left with this essentially this white powder, sometimes very fine, incredibly fine white powder that's so fine it looks almost like a liquid when you kind of slosh it around. And then that eventually will get pasted onto electrodes and become part of the batteries that are powering our, you know, the future. It's amazing just to see how powerful something as basic as, as that can be is it's pretty phenomenal. I guess one question on lithium ion batteries, if we were able to look inside, and I think you've alluded to this um, already, Sam, and I guess a big disclaimer, don't try and do this at home (laughs) because it could explode. Um, But what would you see? So what you would see inside, if you imagine a a cylindrical cell, so the normal kind of cell that you would imagine is what's called a jelly roll. So it's this tightly wound up thing and you can unroll it and it might be a sort of few metres long. And if you unroll it, you'll find that you can also peel apart separate strips. And on those separate strips, what you've got is a typically aluminium piece of foil, just like kitchen foil, but a bit thinner. Uh, And on either side of this aluminium foil will be a kind of black paste that's been dried onto the surface. And this will be your cathode active material bound together with a sort of polymer binder. So it's all stuck there like ink. And on the other foil, which will typically be a copper foil, you'll find your anode active material. And this will be also stuck there with a nice adhesive paste. And then separating these two pieces will be the surprisingly named separator material. Uh, And this is a generally porous uh, polymer material. The crucial thing is to bear in mind with that arrangement is that the two sides, the anode and the cathode, must not touch. If they touch, they will react catastrophically together and your whole battery will set on fire. So the separator's job is to stop them from physically touching so the electrons can't jump straight from one side to the other. But they've got pores in the separator so that the ions, the lithium ions, can travel in a liquid through those pores, connecting the anode and the cathode together. So that's what you'd see inside, a a wound-up jelly roll made of foils and polymers. I guess you paint a really good picture of it. I can almost, I can imagine it. So thank you for that. And Ed, something you talk about in your book is actually the link between these cylindrical lithium batteries and old audio cassettes or VHS tapes from the 1980s. So yeah, what's the story there? 
Yeah, well, supposedly, this is something that people within the kind of manufacturing, battery manufacturing world tell me. And, you know, so, so the way that you're making these jelly rolls, the electrodes themselves are incredibly thin and incredibly long, and they are just, you know, wound up in this jelly roll, a kind of, you know, Swiss roll cake formation. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about a Swiss roll, to be fair. Yeah, it's like a Swiss roll, but they call them jelly rolls in, in the States, I think. And so, that, so they've, they've come to be... And the funny thing is, like, that is, that's an official term. And you go into these battery factories and literally there are jelly roll loader machines. But that process, it actually owes something to what's called real-to-real manufacturing. And for a long time, there've been people making, long before, you know, batteries were such a big thing. So back in the 60s, 50s and so on, People were making tapes and they were making cassettes and it was partly for storage, for data storage and partly then for, obviously, for VHS machines and, and for audio cassettes. And that's a type of manufacturing called reel-to-reel manufacturing and you need special machines to do it. And one of the kind of stories about why it was that Japan became so quickly a big battery manufacturer was that they were already really big in cassette manufacture. And the advent of lithium-ion batteries just happened around the same kind of time as CDs were getting kind of big. And suddenly, all of these companies had these machines, these you know reel-to-reel manufacturing machines that were used to. They were all about kind of coiling up a certain piece of of material uh, into a long roll. They had all these machines, and they didn't really know what to do with them. And they, so the story goes, were able to repurpose a lot of their machinery, the reel-to-reel machinery to be able to do batteries, rolling up those jelly rolls instead of all the cassettes that they were previously doing. And, you know, there's, there's a reason why many of the companies making batteries today, if you look back through their history, there's probably some old cassette manufacturer there a long time ago that's been kind of left behind. Like, I think Sanyo was one that's, that's now being subsumed into one of the big battery manufacturers, TDK as well. Panasonic now is one of the world's biggest battery manufacturers, has a history of reel-to-reel manufacturing and cassettes and things as well. Sony as well back in the day. So it's quite interesting when you look at the kind of industrial heritage of these places, uh, how much that old school manufacturing suddenly turned into what is, you know, the newest thing out in town at the moment. And Sam, battery technology has come a long way in in the recent years, as, as we've discussed, and as we've all seen from the f- devices that we use kind of firsthand, but if we want to phase out fossil fuels in, in some way and move to electric cars, which is one of the many solutions for a particular use cases, we're going to need better batteries. And I guess, why is that? Um, what are the limitations that you're seeing from your perspective and from your research? So I think in terms of electric vehicles, I would say that the battery technology we have today is actually good enough for almost all use cases of vehicles. And there's, of course, endless discussion about the way batteries could go in the future and all these interesting new chemistries and interesting new configurations. However, they are already good enough. And so there are other applications besides electric vehicles where you might need something a bit different. For example, if I want to charge up my batteries during the daytime uh, for my whole electric grid in my country so that I can then have some power available during the night, I might need a slightly different or better kind of battery for that kind of application. But in terms of your mobile phone and laptop and car, I would say that batteries are more than good enough today to do everything we need, unless your needs are ridiculous. So if you want to have a 
uh, insert name of ridiculous company Cybertruck here. Um, if you want to have a vehicle that will drive for, I think it's 700 kilometers in one go, if that's really vital to you, then yes, you're pushing at the limits of battery technology. But if you, like almost everyone, drives less than 100 miles a day and you are able to connect your car to a grid at night, then the batteries we have today are fantastic and more than good enough. What we need, as Ed was saying, is to get the yield up and therefore the costs down and minimise the environmental impact of extracting the materials and producing the cells themselves. That's where we really need to innovate. The actual performance is good enough already, in my view. Definitely. And yeah, the chemistry becomes interesting because, as you said, it hasn't changed so much. But now people are considering you know, taking flight with batteries for example and then the limitations as you said they start to kind of come through right flight's such an interesting one is that possible and i think the batteries people would say maybe it's not clear i think for long-haul flight none of our current chemistries really look anything like enough uh, energy density so amount of energy per volume or specific energy amount of energy per mass they're not really there yet short-haul flight maybe yeah. uh, but long-haul flight is a big problem although Maybe long-haul flight is not such a huge contributor to the greenhouse gas problem in general. So it's interesting. You've got to pick your battles with these things. And on that, I guess we spoke about the yield. So how can we improve the yield and reduce costs for these technologies? And what are the engineering challenges uh, surrounding doing that? That is the billion, multi-billion dollar question. And I think one of the things that is very impressive with wind and solar is the pace of innovation or your learning rate and this has really plagued for example the nuclear industry it takes a very long time to build a nuclear power plant it can take one entire person's career to build one and that means you learn very slowly whereas with wind and solar we have been able to learn very quickly because you build them and each individual unit's quite small and you build lots of factories and you learn from that batteries are of course much more like wind and solar than they are like a nuclear power plant. So you can really innovate much faster because you're iterating much more often. I think what we have seen in the last 10 years is a huge amount of the innovation has been in the engineering side, so much more mechanical engineering. How can we package things in tighter, make them in a box that's safer, extract heat from them so they're cooled, so they're safer as well? How can we do all those things to pack more into the box, which is useful if you don't want your whole car to be stuffed with batteries? And I think we've really made huge progress there. The other end of the sort of scale is we've made a lot of progress on very fine details that no one really talks about in, in, the, in the public world, which is the tiny little additives, these extra little drops of chemical that we put into the battery that seem to just stabilize our active surfaces. So some wider batteries degrade over time. Well, you can think of the surfaces kind of rotting, rusting, corroding, which stops some of the chemistry taking place. What we found is little tiny amounts of extra chemicals in the battery can really slow down that aging process. So one of the difficult bits there is that people have a preconception about batteries that is actually a stereotype that's 10 years out of date because they used to die quite quickly. But now they last a very, very long time. Yeah, you look at your you know, iPhone or Samsung or whatever it might be and you see how long they last for and the you know, it starts to deplete over time Absolutely. and you can see that for performance reasons they're, you know, slowing And I think that's a slightly spicy topic because they're there are not such strong incentives as a mobile phone manufacturer to have the phone last 10 years. In fact, you could say there are incentives for the phone manufacturer to have the battery last only two years because then people will buy another phone. Whereas people wouldn't put up with that for a car. You have a warranty, it has to last eight, 10 plus years. So I think you really have to look at the incentives for all these things to understand why some of the bits of technology are the way that they are. 
And in your research, you're using machine learning to improve battery design. So how does AI help to make better batteries? Right. So we've recently spun out a company from Imperial College London called Polaron AI. And as I mentioned earlier, there's really tricky engineering stuff going on where you've got all of these different machines in your factory. So to make a battery in four steps, you've got to mix together your active materials into a slurry. You've got to spread them on your, on your foil, as Ed was talking about earlier. You've got to dry off all the solvents so it's nice, dry and stuck to the foil. And then you've got to compress them so they're nice, a bit denser together. And then you can also uh, do an initial what we call formation step. So you've got to do a sort of interesting bit of electrochemistry and heating to get them to last longer. So that, in principle, is nice and simple. But as you can imagine, the machines that do those things are uncommon machines. This is not an everyday process that you have in your house. This is major heavy industry. And on those machines, there will be hundreds of knobs and dials, hundreds of settings that you need to minutely adjust, and they will slightly change the product that you're making. And this can have a very dramatic impact on the energy density or the power density, how quickly you can charge or discharge your battery, and how do you tweak all those things at the same time. The current method is basically some very experienced people have been doing it for a long time and they get really good at tweaking all these machines. What AI can help with is learning the relationship between all the settings on all of your machines and what the resulting battery microstructure looks like. And that, that's what we're doing at the moment. And so you can use simulations to try and understand some of these things. And people do. There's lots of good work going on there. But it's actually really hard. And for any young budding engineers out there, you might misleadingly get the impression that some of these are solved problems, sort of we can, you know, we can simulate all this stuff. We can't. It's so complicated. Imagine trying to simulate what's going on inside a blender. You've got millions, billions of particles all swirling around together in this complicated fluid and everything's moving fast. That's a good way to put it. Really hard to yeah. do, right? And so actually, as with many things that are AI accelerated or going that way today, what we're doing is saying, gosh, it's just too hard to model all the physics here. So instead, I'm going to learn the relationship between the inputs and the outputs, and I'm not going to worry too much about the connection between the two. So that's how we're using AI to improve batteries. Amazing. That is fascinating. And Ed, one of the things that we've been speaking about in this discussion, and is also a theme in your book, is that unintended consequences of green technology. So what do we kind of know about the environmental impact of lithium mining in Chile and, and other places? Well, I think we, the answer is, on the one hand, we need to be kind of honest that, you know, getting to, to net zero involves replacing a lot of our current suite of, of things that we are kind of mining and uh, burning with a different suite of minerals. And there is a very positive story here, which I'll get to in a second, but it involves digging more stuff out of the ground. For instance, with lithium, we're not entirely clear on what the long-term environmental consequences are of going into places like the Salado uh, Atacama and draining a lot of the brine out of it. We just don't know, you know, but as one of the miners there said, what's the alternative? You know, we need the lithium for the batteries. And there are lots of people worried about flamingo populations going down. The locals are up in arms about the, the impact that this is having on their local environment. You know, this is one of the driest places in the world. And here they are using water to mine some of this stuff because you need water for some of the processes to get it out of the ground. And so there are some really big questions about the impact we have in order to get to net zero. As I say, there's a positive side to this, which is that whereas a lot of the mining that we've done thus far 
has been for things like coal and for oil and gas. And we've got it out of the ground and we have burnt it. You know, we've burnt it and then carbon has been emitted into the atmosphere. This time around, we're not burning them. We're putting them into batteries. We're putting them into infrastructure, That much of which we can then recycle. We're not doing brilliantly so far at recycling things like lithium, but we're getting better. And we're certainly getting a lot better at things like cobalt. The cobalt recycling rates have gone up enormously uh, in recent decades. And so there is this kind of future where we can envisage a much more circular economy than we have now. So much more recycling, much more reuse of the stuff that we have in this all of this energy infrastructure. In the longer run, our footprint can actually shrink. But in the short run, we need to get more of this stuff out. And, and Sam, probably final thoughts on, on this issue in terms of the environmental impact of whether it be mining or, or just a kind of our involvement and activity in these places. Absolutely. So a key thing that Ed's already highlighted is that at the end of your life, of, of your cell's life, not your life, at the end of a battery's life, when it no longer charges and discharges, you've all had a phone that stops working, all of the elements that were in the battery at the start are still in there at the end. So you haven't lost anything and you can, in principle, recycle all of it and get all of it back. We don't only do that brilliantly, but actually, of course, the recycling industry always is going to lag behind the primary production industry because there's no point in building a recycling plant until you've got loads of old batteries to deal with. So I think there's lots of good reasons for hope there. However, we should, I think, stress at every opportunity just how unbelievably awful the current conditions are for extracting things like cobalt in the DRC. Uh, and so, you know, it is one of those things that I strongly suspect our grandchildren will look at us and say, how are you possibly using a, insert name of phone here, um, when you knew, and we think we all have that kind of sort of cognitive dissonance about lots of parts of our life, whether it's sort of fast fashion garments or whatever, but there really is some awful stuff going on in the world right now to facilitate the kind of tech that we take for granted. And, and probably the, the last question for me, as seen as though this is the Create the Future podcast, um, if you look to the future uh, based upon the different types of work that either of you are doing yeah what would you suggest for some of our listeners in terms of how they can create the future and how they could get involved so i think engineering is an incredibly exciting field and i couldn't recommend it to you highly enough i really enjoyed the day-to-day of my job but i also enjoy that sort of sitting back and big pink picture thinking like the conversations that we've had today but i really think that as I said at the very start, the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that we tell each other, particularly with the work of people like Ed and other journalists, are so vital for us building a world that is truly sustainable and truly kind, rather than just kind of trying to engineer the fastest, sexiest thing possible. We need to really think about what we're doing and why, as opposed to just trying to do it as quickly and excitingly as possible. I mean, I would just say it's it's worth remembering about just how amazing some of the stuff that we are capable of as as humans is. I mean, you know, when you look at the speed with which we have reduced the cost of of batteries, for instance, it's extraordinary. It's extraordinary. Year by year, for the most part, they've just got so much cheaper. And the same thing with wind turbines, the same thing with solar panels. You see it everywhere. You see people getting better at stuff. You see people learning how to make things better all the time. You know, that is one of the most magical, amazing things that humankind has achieved. But we don't talk about it enough. And I just feel we need to be, you know, more aware of this stuff, of the wonder of of the the everyday world uh, that we are achieving all the time. So hopefully we can just revel in that a little bit more and inspire the next generation as well of of engineers, of scientists, uh, of also people wanting to communicate this stuff 
that it matters. And it's not just about services. It's also about making things uh, and making brilliant things and coming up with new ideas because that's what's given us the standard of living we have today and what will improve the world in the future. Great. Speaking my language and probably the last word to Sam. Well, I just want to come back in on that theme of magic that Ed used just there. I think we are entering the period, I think we've already entered it actually, of inventing magic. By which I mean technology is so powerful and mysterious that you are blown away when you use them. I think probably many of us would have had the experience of using ChatGPT and finding it slightly unnerving just how powerful it is. All of these technologies are getting exponentially better, whether it's manufacturing, as Ed says, or some of these technologies around AI. And, you know, what I would say to all of you is come and be part of this. It's incredibly exciting. Be part of the magic. It is changing the world. And let's bring all of you in so that we can change it for the better. Come and be part of that transition to magic. Amazing. Oh, Sam, Ed, thank you so much for your time. I'm grateful to be in the midst of all of this magic. So you know, thank you both for, for joining me today. Thank you so much, George. Thanks, George. After the conversation with Ed and Sam, I left very inspired. It was a good realization that the technology that we currently have in terms of batteries is mostly ready for the applications that we want to bring them to. What left me probably most inspired was the fact that engineers are not just there to solve technical problems, but they're there to also look out for humanity and the mining that is currently being done with regards to this battery technology. We still have a way to go in that space. So looking forward to seeing what the future holds when it comes to the battery technology and the next generations getting involved, regardless of whatever they're interested in and understanding that maybe they have a part to play in that solution as well. You've been listening to Create the Future, a podcast from the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering and Peanut and Crumb. This episode was presented by me, George Amaphidon, and was produced by Anand Jagatia. To find out more about the podcast and the work of the Queen Elizabeth Prize for Engineering, follow QE Prize on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And I'll be back for another episode in two weeks' time. <laughs>